0: We are coming upon a time where COVID vaccinations are going to be available for the 5- to 11-year-old age range here in the U.S., and I know that many of you listening have kids in that age range. I have two kids in that age range. And I will tell you first and foremost that I am not here to give you advice or to tell you what to do with your own kids, but I know that it's been on my mind, and I have a feeling it's been on the minds of a lot of you listening, too. And maybe this has been an easy decision for you. Maybe it hasn't. I know that I've personally been thinking about this backwards and forwards for months and I don't have a lot of people in my community that are really opening up and talking about this with me. I don't know what other people are thinking. I don't know how other people are making their decisions. So today that's simply what I'm here to do is to share my decision-making process with you, which is absolutely going to look different than your own decision-making process. I live in a different part of the world. I have a different family history, different priorities. Maybe parts of my story will sound familiar to you and you'll identify with them. Maybe you'll think my decision is a bunch of garbage and that's okay too. If that's the case, don't feel compelled to tell me that because I'm just one person trying to do the best by my family too. That's what i'm going to be sharing today and i'll be joined by pediatrician dr kelly frayden she's going to be answering my questions and also some of the questions that you all submitted to me too hi this is danae i'm the founder of simple families simple families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler more intentional life in this show we focus on minimalism with kids positive parenting family wellness and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, thanks so much for tuning in. I feel a little brave and simultaneously a little stupid for taking on this topic that I know is so divisive. As always, with the things you hear on this podcast, take what suits you and leave what doesn't. I'm going to tell you, spoiler alert, ahead of time here is that I have decided to give my kids the COVID vaccine. And if that doesn't align with your decision and that makes you feel upset you might just want to skip this episode. But if you're undecided or you're already on board or you're just curious, I hope it's useful for you to hear someone else's thought process on this. When we make big decisions like this, we all come in with baggage and I think it's only fair and helpful to share some of mine. So prior to doing my PhD in child development, I worked for many years as a clinical social worker with disruptive behavior disorders and then later with developmental disabilities, primarily within the autism community. This was back mid-2000s, 2006, 2007, around then, and within the autism community, attending conferences, meeting families that were impacted by the diagnosis, met a lot of families who blamed vaccines. Met a lot of people who worked for governmental organizations that blamed vaccines. I think some of that association between vaccines and autism has faded over the past decade. But I know when I was immersed in it, that conversation was very much a part of it. This was pre-kids. So naturally, when I became a mom, this was some of my baggage, some of these stories that I had heard. And I had some skepticism around vaccines. With my first child, we did a vaccine schedule that was modified from what the CDC recommended. Both my kids are fully vaccinated now. My second child was vaccinated on the CDC schedule. I wanted to share that because going into this, there may be some of that hesitancy still lingering in the back of my mind and my core beliefs, even though I am a supporter of vaccines now. I think past experiences still play a role in our present decision-making, whether we like it or not. I got a text message last week from one of my very good friends who is vaccine hesitant. She hasn't been vaccinated and she's not going to vaccinate her kids. And she is angry. She's angry that she doesn't have a choice. You know, and me being in the state of New York, the COVID vaccine is going to be mandated for school attendance. It's just a matter of time, probably a short time. Do I feel angry about not having a choice for my kids? I do, I do feel angry that this is my only option. I don't wanna give my kids any more vaccines than I already have to. So I do feel anger. To be honest, I felt the whole range of emotions about all this, but more than angry, I'm desperate. My kids are masked at school and on the bus, that's eight to nine hours a day and they're social distancing. I am desperate. I'm desperate for my bright, curious, free-spirited kindergartner who really doesn't like going to school, which I can't help but thinking is impacted by the COVID guidelines that are in place. What sort of impact is that gonna have on her attitude towards education going forward? And I'm desperate for my second grader who struggles to hear and masks have been nothing short of auditory deprivation for him. I am desperate for my kids to be able to hug their friends. I'm desperate for my husband and I to have the peace of mind so that we're not gonna have 10 days off of work unexpectedly without childcare. I am desperate for our next step forward. And for us, yes, the vaccine is going to serve as a protective mechanism against the virus. But more importantly, it will serve as a protective mechanism for my children's education, for their emotional well being, and for their overall development. This is our, emphasis on our, next best step to an enjoyable educational experience without disruptions, to intimate peer relationships, to snuggling the new babies and pregnant women in our lives, to unmasked speech therapy to compensate for language loss. So yeah, I'm angry, but I really don't have time to dwell in my anger because I am desperate for the next step forward right now. Yes, there is absolutely a risk with the vaccine. We don't know the long-term implications. But as far as my children's mental well being, education, and social development, COVID is not a risk. It is a clear and present danger. Now, I know that not all of this is going to change immediately after they get a vaccine, but it will be our best and swiftest step forward. For my family, time is of the essence. Maybe you aren't desperate, and maybe you live somewhere where life is normal, and I feel a little bit jealous. Maybe none of my experiences will resonate with you. And maybe your priorities are very different. And that's okay. I'm not sharing this to sway anyone. I'm simply sharing this so that you can hear someone else talk through their decision-making process. I respect you and I respect your decision, even if it's different from mine. And I ask you to do the same. And because I think it's so important that we do involve medical professionals in our medical decisions... I'm joined today by Dr. Kelly Frayden. Dr. Frayden is a graduate of Harvard and Columbia. She's a pediatrician and a mother of two that lives in New York City. She works in private practice, but she also shares calm, realistic, evidence-based parenting tips on her Instagram account, Advice I Give My Friends. I hope you find this episode helpful. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hi, Dr. Frayden. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yes. Uh, so um,
1: I'm originally from North Carolina and I'm a pediatrician. I um, kind of was drawn to working in pediatrics after I had uh, childhood cancer and kind of saw how having an um, illness as a child kind of colored our family dynamics and all of the relevant health um work that is done like within the family home and how it changes sort of how you think about yourself. So, um, I live in New York city where I have a private practice and I have two little kids, a three and seven year old.
0: Oh, okay. I have a five and a seven year old.
1: Yeah. They're really fun ages. So, you know, during the, before the pandemic, I was working in school health for New York city department of health. And, uh, when everything shut down, I had to quit to like zoom school, my kids, and get them through that. And then I came back into private practice about six months ago. So it's been fun to reconnect with clinical medicine.
0: Great. Well, we're happy to have you chatting today. And I am nervous about talking about vaccines. I'm going to be completely honest. I feel like there's not a really good safe space for it. Um, If I can be totally honest with you, I feel like most of the medical uh, industry or medical professional professionals when you ask them at this point is get the vaccine, just do it. Trust the science. And I think that when you have a natural question asker, like myself, I want to ask questions and I want to have a safe space to ask the questions. And even amongst friends, I think it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. Have you seen that?
1: Yes. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to always do what's safest for their kids. And there's a lot of judgment wrapped up in that, um, because to be a good parent, you have to you have to do the right thing. And it's a lot of pressure uh, during the pandemic. At the same time, while parents are receiving such, such mixed messages and sometimes the media is our main source of information and the media's job is not necessarily to like educate and empower it's to like inform and sell newspapers. And so right. sometimes there's a tension there about the kind of, you know, there might be a headline about something, but that's, there's never a follow-up with more information or nuance and it leaves parents feeling quite confused. And so I think, I think it's important for medical professionals to be open to having these discussions and, you know, there's not always enough time or there's not always enough space um, left in like the busy pediatric office to dig into these questions, which is why I think it's important to talk about it in social media where people can kind of con- confront some of these questions and get answers and information on their terms.
0: Yeah. And it's funny you say that a lot of these stories, um, will come up and they have no follow-up. And that makes me think of the brain eating amoeba from the Texas splash pad recently. Um, do you think you're going to be getting a lot of questions about splash pad safety in your practice now? I don't
1: know. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 the brain eating amoebas are certainly quite scary, but I do think they're also quite rare. And unfortunately, you know, rare, terrible things do happen. And so we always have to confront the question of like, how do we balance vigilance against every possible bad thing that could happen with living our lives and, and enjoying our lives and experiencing a full range of, of possibilities for our lives. I mean, right. it's, so it's always hard to, especially when there's something new like that to know how, how big or how common it's going to be. But yeah, I'm not uh, restricting my three-year-old from splash pads. (laughs) I think they're important developmental, (laughs) developmentally rich learning spaces. Right.
0: And I think that it is hard because we hear these things and the the media tends to pick up the rare things the clickbait right this is, and I hate to call it clickbait because it is a huge tragedy for this family but it's something that piques our interest because it's new to us and we want to learn about it and I think especially in a world where parents are more and more informed than ever we want to know all the risks and all the things and sometimes that brings about a lot of anxiety
1: yes you know and at the center of that is also the question of, of trust right and I think that, that it's it's a reflection, in some ways, you know, on on modern medicine that we haven't um, we haven't in every situation cultivated a relationship where people trust us as doctors, um, and so so I think you have to earn that trust by being like reliable and and culturally appropriate and and responsive to people's concerns, but but it you know I think I think there's a limit to what you can um, what c- amount of content you can expose. A lot of doctors refer to it as like a fire hose of information raining down on us about COVID and about vaccines and about new variants. And, and even for a health professional to keep up with everything is a f- like a full-time job. And so to expect parents to do that on top of all the challenges of parenting during a pandemic, it's really a lot. Yeah. Um, so I do think at some point it's helpful to have trusted sources of information and trusted curation of information, because especially, you know, the rapid dissemination of some of these articles, it's like it, you know, to know what to worry about is is a moving target.
0: Yeah. And I know when I was raised, I was born in the eighties and raised in a family where very much you trust your doctor, you go to your, your doctor, you ask them, they give you an answer. you that's what you there, there you go. And I think we're raising children in an age now where a lot of parents are going to their doctor, asking a question, and then maybe, maybe not taking that answer, maybe going and doing their own research for better or worse. Um, back in my mid twenties, I worked on a neuroscience unit in a hospital, and that was the first time that I ever kind of got the behind the scenes, look at physicians making decisions about medical care. And I remember being so shocked after being raised in this environment where the doctors know to seeing that science isn't always black and white and physicians don't always have this perfect answer that I, you know, it's how, how science does change and evolve. And that was really eye opening Cause I did always see it as black and white. Have you heard that from others?
1: Yes. I think it's important to understand that, you know, there's nuance and there's context and there's, there's always risks and benefits to consider. Um, and it's never as simple as it seems, the more you learn sort of the more you wanna know and, and you can't always know everything about a situation. I think there's rarely a certainty about what's the best path. So, you know, I think it, it, it's definitely a challenge and it's a reality that at the, that during the pandemic, some of these big journals like, you know, the Journal of the American Medical Association you could tell that they had a bias to what they were publishing. And like the, for whatever reason, the editorial board there did not think it was a good idea to reopen schools. And so, you know, like there were journals that were publishing the same scientific content in a different way to promote their kind of like agenda and their line of thinking. So it's funny cause we think of like mainstream media as having these kinds of biases, but really everyone has biases. And you know, you can read the same study and say, well, it helped 50% of people, like what a success. And you can, and some other people might be like it only helped 50% of people, what a <laughs> yeah. terrible treatment. And and it, a lot of it is not just the numbers, but you're, you know what the, the opinions and values you bring to looking at the numbers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's hard. And I think back to early motherhood, When I had my first child, I was finishing up my PhD in child development and I was very much in the do everything, be everything mode, right? I wanted to do everything right. I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to create this perfect existence for my child. And that I think in many ways meant that I sort of needed to wear all the hats. You know, I needed to be the mom and the teacher and the doctor and the accountant and everything. And, um, In those, I did delay the vaccinations for my first child slightly. We still were fully vaccinated by the first year, um, but we did it on a slightly different schedule from the CDC schedule because I did have some skepticism about it, or I don't even know if you would call it skepticism, just me wanting to kind of, again, control all the variables. Um, And then I think by the time I had my second child, I realized that I had to delegate some of this because I can't carry all that burden and make all those decisions. I'm not the expert in every area. Um, And we went, we did the the regular CDC schedule. My kids are fully vaccinated now.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's important that we kind of, you know, just like there's nuance and context in medicine, there's nuance and context in how parents make decisions. And it's not always like pro-vax or anti-vax. You can be like, vaccine curious or vaccine hesitant or you know, people aren't so e- easily like labeled about about their opinions on these matters and I think it's important um to be respectful of where people are coming from whenever you're having these conversations. like parents know what's best for their family and yeah. and our job is to like inform
0: and empower in my opinion and go from there right I appreciate that. <laughs> so we, my family, we have followed the CDC guidelines from, you know, the very beginning of all this in March, 2020, you know, we've masked, we stayed home when we were told to my husband and I vaccinated ourselves as soon as possible. Um, we've done everything that we can be to be safe and to keep others safe. Now, all that being said, I don't love the idea of being first in line to vaccinate my kids. <laughs> um, and Uh, that it's kind of, it's been weighing on my mind for a long time. It just feels I, for for a while, it was like, you know, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to be the first in line. Like we're not going to be like there the day of, um, but my decision has kind of has changed and reformed my opinion as time has gone on. And we are going to do it as soon as possible. And I know that I'm going to have people asking, like, you know, DMing me on Instagram or emailing me being like, what are you doing? And, um, I am not, qualified or desiring to give advice to anyone, but I do share want, want to share a little bit about my decision-making process, because I don't think, like I said, there's really this venue to talk about it and to share those experiences and, and thought processes.
1: Yes. And we know that it really helps people to, you know, when you, when you look at people making their decisions to vaccinate, hearing other people that they trust, how they make the decisions, you know, whether it's their doctors or, or their favorite podcast person, uh, it really makes a difference in
0: how they approach it. It makes it something that they can, you know, grapple with more effectively. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of people listening today are going to say, you know, (laughs) your story doesn't align with mine at all. Your opinions don't align with mine at all. And that's okay. Okay. You know, we can still be friends if we make different decisions, if we have different journeys. Um, I don't I want to just remind everyone that that what I share is not going is going to be very different from your world. We live in different places. We have different lifestyles, um, different family histories. So it's I think our decision making process is always going to look a little different. So I can only speak from my own world. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So first of all, where where I live has a big impact on my decision. Um, we live in New York. We're about an hour outside of New York City. And Kelly, you know that life looks very different in New York than in many parts of the world. It looks different than Texas. I used to live in Texas, um, different than Florida, different than UK, and different depending on, you know, where your kids go to school. My kids, and as I think most kids in this area, have really strict COVID guidelines at school. You know, they're masking all day. They're masking on the bus. Um, right now they're allowed to unmask on the playground outside, but I know some other local schools have gone back to masking and distancing on the playground just in the past week or two. So that might be coming down the pipe for us. I'm bracing for that. Um, but has that been your experience in the city too?
1: Yes. I think it's really helpful whenever we're talking about the pandemic to understand that people's environments really make a big difference and uh, you know i have the kind of privilege of living in a neighborhood where uh, almost 100% of the people who are eligible to be vaccinated chose to be vaccinated and so uh, luckily that has a big impact on my unvaccinated children's exposure risk you know that they're they're pretty effectively cocooned but then other people in areas where there has been more hesitancy you know if if only half the people in your community have have been vaccinated or, or infected, there's a lot more risk of having more surges, and a lot more risk of your child encountering COVID. So you just have to know what the dynamic is in your area.
0: Yeah. And I know that California has already started requiring vaccines in their public schools and, and it's absolutely going to be happening here. Um, just a matter of time. I'm sure that's it's yes. already in the works. Um, I mean, in, in the city, you have to show proof of vaccination to eat at a restaurant. You know, I, I promised my daughter on her fourth birthday that I would take her to see frozen on Broadway. And now she's almost six, (laughs) um, Vaccines are just really a part of returning to normal life in this part of the world. And I should add this, you know, this is the world that we live in, both of us is a very privileged world. You know, we can afford to eat in restaurants and attend shows and have access to vaccines, but it it is part of the world that we live in. And I don't think that's changing anytime soon.
1: Yes. When I was working in New York City, public schools was during a time when they were transitioning. And I think in a lot of parts of the country, it's it's, you know, maybe you have to have your measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine to go to school. But here you actually have to have nearly the whole CDC schedule of vaccines to attend school. And it's sort of, they're sort of of the mindset that like, you know, vaccines have benefit and that at the population, you know, level, it really impacts well-being to have uh, children get their vaccines, so so that's the choices that you know we're living in that world here. So it does definitely impact how people make these decisions.
0: Yeah, and I'm and like I said, in our family we follow the guidelines and we support masking and distancing. But I think it's important to note that we don't have to like them. <laughs> yes, for um, sure. I'm right there I'm, with you. Right, and I'm just I'm done with masking and just, I'm not done. Like I'm still doing it, but like mentally I'm just done. Um, for not just for myself, but mostly on behalf of my kids. Um, I've been thinking this is probably like kind of a way out there metaphor. Um, but I've been thinking a little bit about, um, the story with the Chilean miners who are stuck down in the mine for like 70 days. And it feels a little bit like COVID has felt a little bit like that. You know, we're stuck down in this hole and we're trying to get out and we've had resources like given to us. We're surviving down here, right? We have like food and water, but we don't want to stay down here forever. Like, we want to get out and how do we get out? And that's like, that's the big journey here. And there's no perfect way out. And vaccines have been this sort of best way out that we've found so far. Um, And that again, like, I think that's like, for for whatever reason, I'm just picturing that, like we want to get out of this hole, but it, it feels hard and finding that hundred percent safe option option doesn't even seem like it's going to be possible. Um, and I know I have a lot of people saying, you know, is it, is this vaccine safe for kids? And they want this 100% guarantee. And is there, will we ever be able to give that 100% guarantee?
1: You know, it's a great question, and, and I think that we, we do have a lot of confidence in the vaccine because at this point, you know, millions and millions of 12 to 18-year-olds have had the vaccine, and, and it, uh, overall tolerated it very, very well. Um, and we know the vaccine data should be coming out soon for the 5 to 11-year-old group and then younger groups after that. But we have every reason to be optimistic that the vaccines are both safe and effective, I think a lot of people in the medical community kind of view them as like real miracles. Like it's it's our generation's like man on the moon that they were able to do this so quickly. And it's, um, I think it's helpful for parents to have the context of this va- these vaccine technologies. The mRNA technology has really been in development since the eighties, you know, that they first figured out how mRNA worked there and they started using it. Um, in vaccine trials even as early as like 2005 and and um and it happened to be like ready this plug and play technology that i think we'll be seeing a lot more of in our lifetime you know they're going to use this mrna technology to try to fight cancers and to try to do all these other things as well so i think it's it's cool it's cool technology that has enabled it. And it's it's overall been really, really well tolerated in the millions of millions of children who have gotten it. Does that mean there's zero risk of having a reaction or a complication? No. And I think is we have to think about the risks and the benefits and I think the biggest risk um, is the myocarditis, um, which got, has gotten a lot of news. I think a lot of people worry about the idea of, um, you know, the vaccine leading you to have an autoimmune kind of reaction that leads to inflammation of the heart muscle, which is, you know, super important. And, you know, now we know, you know, one aspect of vaccine development is, is post-marketing surveillance. And so the vaccine studies, the trials that have been done, you know, on five to 11 year olds, they enrolled like less than 3,000 kids. and and people might say those are small, but, you know, those are just kind of the same size as every other vaccine trial that's been done historically. And it's a different kind of study that, you know, it, it identifies kind of one in a thousand kind of complications. And it's not until you have, Uh, the opportunity to look at millions of kids that you can see the one in a million type risks. And that's the kind of category that the myocarditis has come in. And in the very highest risk categories, um, you know, like the, the 16 year old boys, it seems like it's been around 60 to 80 cases per million of of heart inflammation that's mostly mild, mostly treated outpatient and seems to fully resolve. There have been a handful of cases that are more severe than that and required care in the hospital. Um, And so I think that that's scary for parents to think about. The good news is that for younger children, the dose of the vaccine is like a third or less depending on what age your child is. And so we do expect that the, younger children will have a lower risk of myocarditis. And the other thing I'd say is we have to always balance these risks against the risk of getting COVID. And when you look at the risk of having myocarditis or heart inflammation from COVID, the numbers are more like 1500 cases per million. And because of how infectious Delta is, it's, it's, kind of, it's not realistic to think you can like live your life and not get COVID, COVID's never going away. Um, so you have a choice to make whether you want to get it through like natural immunity and being exposed and potentially face that that higher risk or the risk of exposing others versus if you want to choose the, the small uh, risk of the vaccine. And for for me, it seems like an obvious choice, but I, I understand that there's also like this. You have to take an action to take the vaccine rather than like waiting to. To have the infection happen to you, so I understand it's hard for some parents to to step up to do that. And um, I, I'd also just say that you don't have to necessarily be the first in line. If it if it doesn't feel right for your family, you can kind of wait and see, and then still decide to get it once you have you know once an, a million children have it, which I bet a million children don't have it in the first month, and then you'll have that much more information, and maybe that will give you the confidence you need to take that take that next step.
0: Dr. Freiden, we're gonna take a quick pause for a one minute word from today's sponsor. The sponsor for today is KiwiCo. Fall is finally here and it's a great time to get started on your new home decor project. Maybe you're practicing self-care through crafting or DIY gifts, or maybe that's totally not your thing and your kids love it and you need somebody else to put it together for you. I know that's me. Even if it doesn't come naturally, you can discover your inner maker and boost your creative confidence with Maker Crate from KiwiCo. With these boxes you can experiment with new techniques, get inspiration from real designs, and create a finished project that's fun and functional. We've been using KiwiCo for quite a while, especially with their STEM theme boxes, but these new Maker Crates really take it to the next level. So turn artistic visions into reality with Maker Crate from KiwiCo. You'll get 50% off your first month plus free shipping with the code simple at KiwiCo.com. That's 50% off your first month at KiwiCo, kiwic with the promo code simple. As always, thanks for supporting our sponsors and back to today's episode. My background, I'm a clinical social worker and my PhD is in child development. So I'm always thinking about, you know, the whole child, as far as the emotional development and the educational impact and the social impact as well. And I mean, again, like just talking about my own story, looking at my own kids, I have a kindergartner and she doesn't like school. You know, she doesn't want to be there and she is such a curious, bright girl and she's a free spirit and she does not like wearing a mask all day and walking on a line to get into the classroom and the COVID guidelines feel very restrictive to her. Um, and I wonder how this is going to impact her education as she grows and, and the love for learning that is established so early. Um, and then I, I have a second grader who has auditory challenges and I've seen in the past couple years with COVID the language gap just growing greater and greater, you know, and we've been trying to supplement that with speech therapy, but you know, speech therapy with a mask on is like trying to ride a bike while it's tied to a tree. Like you just can't really get anywhere. And I, I feel like that we just can't, like, we can't wait any longer. Like these things are not going away. We need, we need to do something for our family. And I know that getting a vaccine is not going to fix all of this, but it is one step into a more normal life for us where we live. Um, I know the masks aren't going away and the distancing guidelines aren't going away immediately, but Like we've got to, we've got to move forward. And that's, that's where I'm at is that my kids, their emotional well-being, And I guess there's that small risk from the vaccine, but there's also, it's not a risk for education and emotional development and social development. It is a clear and present danger in our family. And I'm seeing the impact of it already. So if you have to compare the physical and the emotional and and way between those two and i think we can't forget that that there's other impacts aside from just this small risk for a physical health
1: yes and i and i think you know i've i in college i started with this line of research about the effects of toxic stress and predictors of resilience and and in terms of you know our well-being we think about like chronic vigilance as and day-to-day stress as raising our cortisol levels and impacting our cardiovascular health and our metabolism in in negative ways, you know, we think about that it's an abstract cost, but having to worry about how close you are to others and how you're following the changing rules all the time and whether you might get somebody else sick, and every time you cough, if it might be COVID, and you might get somebody else sick, even if you're not worried about your own health, if you get COVID, you know this—it's a—it's a cost, it's a tax that we're all paying. And I do feel like once all the children in school have the opportunity to be vaccinated, we can start to move on from that—that that fear and that daily like baggage that we're carrying. Um, and so I—I I would love it if some of these organizations would give us a little guidance about how they're viewing the next phase of the pandemic. Yeah. But because in my head, I'm, I am viewing it as like, you know, once everybody has the chance to be vaccinated, who's in school um, you know, we know that you can get a breakthrough infection, but it's rare. And it may, and if you do have one, you're unlikely to get very sick and you're unlikely to spread it as much as you would without the vaccine. So at some point we'll, we'll be able to like stop testing as much and stop, stop um, treating it differently than all the other viruses that go around every year. And so yeah. I think the vaccines are in my mind, really like an end point for this pandemic that having access to the vaccines should allow us to start to move on. And I'm really looking forward to that too. I,
0: yeah, I I totally agree. And I think you're right on, On it would be better to have some clarity of what the next step looks like on the horizon, because when I saw the American Association of Pediatrics announced that, you know, this year they were going to recommend that everyone vaccinated or unvaccinated was still going to be masked. I really felt, I just kind of had this deep sigh. Cause I was like, you know, why are people going to vaccinate their kids? Like why vaccinate if nothing is going to change? And I mean, for us, the real thing that I, the big change that will happen once our kids are vaccinated is that we won't have to quarantine them the same way that we do now, if they're exposed and that is, that's huge, you know, not having to miss out on school, I think there's constant stress between my husband and I about the kids like suddenly being like poof home for 10 days. You know, um, I think that stress is huge for, for everyone in our family, at least. So I, I know that again, like, I don't think everything is going to change right away, but I think we'll start to see some of those benefits. Um, once the kids are vaccinated and then in our family, I, you know, I'm asking myself like this, why now, why not wait a couple months? And we have a new niece on the way she's going to be born in early December. So if my kids are not vaccinated, you know, we're going to have another year without family at the holidays. And my, my daughter's closest friend lives around the corner and her mom is very pregnant about to have another baby. And that friendship has been hugely supportive of her mental health. They've been playing indoors without masks and it feels normal to her. And sure. I could say like, you're not going to be playing with her for a couple months because she has a new baby at home and her mom is higher risk because she's pregnant. And and I don't want to do that. Like that has been hugely protective of her mental health, having that friendship. And cause she doesn't have that, you know, she doesn't have that normal. Like they, my kids just desperately want to see inside other people's houses. <laughs> I don't know if your kids are like that, but yeah, um, yes. I,
1: think, I that, think that's, those are some of the best reasons to rush for it, right. To protect the other people around you and to, to, you know, the people who I think it makes the most sense for to have the vaccine right away or are, are people who have. Loved ones, they want to protect and they want to be free with and be close with. And, and I think we know with like, we know with certainty that it will be safer for your daughter to be a around a new baby. If she's had her vaccine and you'll have to worry less about it. And that, that
0: is a real benefit. Yeah. And my kids go to independent schools and they can mandate the vaccine whenever they want. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess that's another question I had from a few people as well for you was, um, and I am worried. Like, you know, what if my kids get COVID next week, and then the schools mandate vaccines in three weeks' time? Like, what if kids have already had COVID, and then should they be getting the vaccine? Should there be a, a waiting period? What does that look like?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So, when the um, when the uh, ACIP group meets to discuss, so the EUA, which is the emergency use application from the from the FDA, they're supposed to meet October 26th, and then they can either, you know, recommend or not the EUA for the Pfizer vaccine. And then the the, the ACIP is like the immunization practices in this country, and they'll they'll provide uh, more specifics on that policy. I know um, with uh, older kids and adults, they haven't they haven't specified a waiting period other than like you shouldn't go get your vaccine if you're contagious. And spread COVID, but um, there is maybe more of a waiting period if you have a severe case, if you're hospitalized, or if you have myocardial in- inflammation. Um, but I wouldn't worry too much about, about the schools. If your school is like requiring vaccination and for some reason you're not eligible, um, you know, if for like a real reason, your doctor can always write you a note if that's the case. Um, and I think that most schools will allow for at least a few months before it's required, because I think they that schools understand. I, I think there's also, I had been really hopeful that the, the vaccine would be available before September, but there's sort of like, a, there's sort of an, an inertia that happens in these schools about their policies. And, and I feel like it's unlikely that they take the masks off this school year, halfway through, um, and so I, I feel like because they're unlikely to change their precautions, I think they're unlikely to require the vaccine, you know, mid-year, but we'll see, I guess, how some of these schools decide to go about it.
0: Yeah. No, you could be right about that. I think, but who knows? There are so many surprises, right? (laughs) Summer camp. No, that
1: may be a different, right. They'll require the vaccine for most summer camps.
0: Yeah. What do you think about spacing the doses farther apart than recommended? I had a few people asking about that too.
1: It's a great question because we have seen that the Moderna vaccine has been slightly uh, longer lasting immunity, and we're not sure if that's because the dose is a little higher or because there's an extra week between doses. Um, and, And the idea is that as your first dose has more of an effect, you know, maybe the second dose a little later makes the effect last longer. Um, the, the problem is that uh, we just we just don't know, you know. So we know that the safety and effectiveness for the vaccine will be based on what they did in the trial. So we have to kind of stick by that as our best practice uh, guidance. And um, I think the reality is that um, even if your children get get Pfizer. For the first round. It's quite possible that a year later they may getting be getting a Moderna booster or something else. I think that um, that we will probably see boosters or new strains of COVID, um, you know, more narrowly targeted in the years to come. So it's not your only chance to have you know protection on board. Um, so I I think that that it's hard to deviate from the guidance we have from the trial and yeah. that's probably the way to move forward.
0: Yeah. Um, I had a couple of questions also on long-term fertility implications. Where does that come from? Was there something, I mean, I've heard this kind of like buzz about fertility. It just concerns. like where one that... guy's
1: blog okay. <laughs> where he There's was no like, I think this it. protein is shaped like that protein and maybe, okay. maybe it could have an effect and, and it it, it for just one guy's blog, I mean, wow, it has had a real effect. It has really like caused a lot of stress and anxiety. And I think, um, I think there's really not a lot of, there's not any scientific evidence in support of this theory that it, it negatively impacts fertility. Um, All the, you know, the U S association's uh, about pregnancy and fertility, the reproductive endocrinologists and the OBGYNs, they've all come out very clearly to support the vaccines. And the, you know, I think a uh, part of it may also stem from the fact that people's periods have sometimes been disrupted. And we, what we know, like that, if you look at adult women or teenage women for that, for that matter, um, periods are not always very predictable. Like as much as 15% of women may have an irregular cycle one month. Um, and that's just because what causes your periods is very complex. It has to do with like your hormones and your stress and your diet and your sleep. And, and you you know, if you get a cold or you get a vaccine, maybe that'll be more likely to throw it off. But I don't think there's any evidence that, that despite the fact that some women have had their, um, their regular cycles disrupted that there's any fertility concerns you know they are looking for, for this um, and they're not seeing it and i think gen- generally the idea of like long term complications from vaccines isn't like very well established scientifically because you you know you're injecting something that is in this situation you know like dead it's like a protein it's not a virus that makes you sick Um, And so it, it passes like the actual mRNA piece may be in your body for minutes. Um, And then it generates these spike proteins that maybe could stay in your body for two to five days, mostly like locally at the site of the injection and your body has the reaction. And so, you know, your body eats up those spike proteins and the whole thing, like really it should be gone. Any evidence of the vaccine should be gone within 10 days at the absolute most and any response from your body is really over by two weeks after, um, you know, from the vaccine. So, you know, they look, I've gotten some questions, they look and they follow the children who are in the studies for two years, because, you know, we're we're always open and we're always learning. You wouldn't wanna not follow those children. Um, So once you have a cohort of people who are part of a study, they follow them but, but most of the expected reactions are thought to occur within two weeks of the dose of the vaccine and, um, and the, the emergency use application requires two months. So there's a real buffer there for like, what are the longer term reactions we might see?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what about the people who were like me in early motherhood, who, Kind of are choosing to piece together their own path forward as opposed to following the CDC guidance. Do you have, and, you know, I, my heart really goes out to those people because I was that person, you know, the person who was trying to do it all and control, all the external variables. And what, what about people like that, that you feel like are, you know, turning to Google and trying to do their own research and draw their own conclusions? Um, any advice for them?
1: I would, um, I would, if you're doing, if you're the kind of person doing a lot of your own research, caution you um, about these pre-peer review articles that are available, because some of them you might, you might never see published because sometimes the methodology in those articles or the way they're approaching a question isn't always like the best practice. And if you just read the abstract, or if you have a more superficial understanding of the article, like it might not occur to you, like what's off about it. So I know MedRx um, has been like a resource for rapid dissemination of information, but sometimes that information really hasn't been vetted or, or, or um, consolidated. And I've seen a lot of questionable articles on the site. So so just be careful about pre-published articles um, when you're making these decisions. And and I guess I I, I am a big fan of following this, the not spacing out your own vaccine schedule because I just think that there are unknowns there. Um, so when it comes to like the early childhood shots, I know most parents are like, I don't want three needles in one day and three needles is three boo-boos. But we also know that, that, um, like if you fall and skin your knee, you probably are exposed to like 2000 antigens at a time. And your body is like developing, um, a response to all of those, you know, like the dirt, the bacteria, the, the lint, the, all the different stuff your body is exposed to. And so, so when you think about even getting all of your two month shots at the same time, it's like eight antigens. And so, so the, I know you have like this, this little baby that you're looking at and you want to protect them, but at the same time, like they can handle it. And now, now we have like, more targeted vaccines that are more specific and like it's it's not not going to overwhelm their system typically. Those those fears are understandable, but they're often like not based in science. And sometimes when you get off schedule, then you know it makes them more likely to have a mistake or to get exposed to RSV when you bring your baby back for another visit and and um. You know, you're, sometimes we don't know if the vaccines work as well when they're given earlier or later. Sometimes we have, you know, vaccines that really work best at a certain time. So I, I worry also about if you delay, like especially the two month vaccines that you delay the protection from some of the things that cause like baby meningitis that, that are a part of our environment. So there's, there's sometimes costs to delays to consider too, in addition to the benefits.
0: Yeah. And I think there's really something to be said about finding a pediatrician that you can trust and have a partnership with. And so often I feel like maybe that's kind of at the root of this, like using the doctor Google is like, if you have a pediatrician that will spend the time with you to answer your questions and really hear you out, not make you feel stupid for asking questions then maybe you don't have to go to the internet to do your research. And I think that, and I've, we've had, we've moved a couple of times and we've had pediatricians move. So we've had a couple of pediatricians over the years. And I know that's something that I've always looked for first and foremost is I need somebody that knows that I'm also an expert on my kid. You know, I'm an expert on my kid. You're an expert on my kid's health. Let's work together don't tell me what to do. Let's make these, you know, let's work in, in conjunction to make decisions about this child. And um, I don't like to be talked down to, I don't like to be made to feel stupid for asking questions. And I know some people have that experience in the office of their pediatricians and it's such an important thing.
1: It's such a hard thing because the reality of it is that that like insurance doesn't reimburse very much for these visits, right? So like for being your child's doctor for a year or for your well visit, you might as a pediatrician get like $40. And, you wow. know, it's like the the half hour and the the forms and the, you know, so I think generally it's more closer to 80, but then half of that is typically like the rent and the nurse and the vaccine storage and, and all the yeah. overhead for running an office. So, you know, uh, pediatricians and and the people who work in the office have to make a living too. So they end up with these visits that are like 15 to 30 minutes and they're so short and there's so much to talk about and to do it in the best way really requires time sometimes. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I've kind of saw out a practice where I can make my own schedule more, but that comes at a cost. Like I can't see everybody and I don't take the insurance. And, um, but I have a lot that's, you know, I, I have a lot of, um, appreciation for how difficult it is to practice good medicine and those constraints, because it's hard to listen and really like get the time for everything in, in such a short period of time. So, yeah. you know, I would say like, if you're sometimes feeling like you're not getting enough answers um, from your pediatrician, maybe finding a different one, maybe, maybe like um, trying to understand how within the constraints of their office, you can get what you want. And sometimes it might be like scheduling an extra visit, even if there's a copay, you know? And so sometimes when you do that, um, especially like if your child has chronic conditions, sometimes like say, you know, there are families who want just at the annual visit also to talk about the food allergies and the constipation and the and the, the other issues. And it's like, okay, but there's all this like, well, child stuff too. And now we're just cramming it all in together, it's yeah. hard. Um, so sometimes to have separate visits to follow up about ongoing issues can provide more space for the important conversations to be respectful and like to address all your
0: concerns. Yeah. Our, our pediatrician is wonderful. And she answers all my questions, but she talks like a thousand miles a minute, which is yeah. fine. Cause like I do too. So we get each other, but, um, I, I see that she's probably developed that as this, this coping mechanism for right. having like very little dump. bit of time to do it. <laughs> (laughs) a ton of information. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's always good to remember. I think that's really good advice too, that you may need to set aside separate time, a separate visit to talk about other things. You can't cram it all into that very short period of time, because then, you know, we parents who are trying to cram all that into a short period of time are also the same ones who are frustrated when things are running behind and you're stuck in the waiting room for too long. Right. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes. And I would say sometimes siblings too, like I know it's so convenient having all the kids seen at the same time. But then sometimes, um, especially if one sibling has more going on than the others, like sometimes that ends up being like a short shift for the other kids, yeah. um, especially because we only have so much attention that we can pay during these visits. So sometimes, you know, if, if your schedule allows for flexibility, you know, devoting to one visit for one kid
0: can be helpful. Good. That's good advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fraden. I really appreciated chatting with you today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I wish everybody the best, um, the best guidance and support as they make these decisions for their family and, and we'll all celebrate the end of the pandemic when it finally does come.
0: <laughs> right. And you ha- actually have a book about parenting in the pandemic, right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So I guess after I quit my job (laughs) and was zoom schooling, my kids, I was like pacing around, um, worrying about how people would cope with the stress of the pandemic. And my husband would say that maybe I got tired of spending so much time with him, but I like wrote a book in a month, uh, August of 2020, um, And it's parenting in a pandemic and it doesn't really tackle vaccines because the vaccines weren't out yet, but it talks a lot about making decisions and uncertainty and protecting newborns and trying to put the risk to children in perspective, because I know any risk to children we take so seriously, but thank goodness that COVID hasn't been as serious for children as it has been for older adults or people with comorbid conditions. So trying to like give parents the information they need to feel confident about making some of these decisions
0: yeah I love that and you have another new book a new book that you're working on now
1: yes yes so uh, I originally started sharing stuff on social media because I want wanted to provide a book about how to help uh, when your family is uh, facing a challenge like maybe a diagnosis or a mental health issue or a developmental disorder um, because it can really like throw off the family dynamic and make, uh, things like, you know, siblings and family dinners and uh, parents' employment choices and school and communication and, and all, it brings up uh, so many issues. Um, and when you look at most parenting books, it's like typical children with typical challenges. And it's like, there's all these one out of three children having chronic medical conditions and like, where's a book for them? So I'm working on a book for them.
0: Oh, I love that. 2023 advanced parenting. Well, we'll you'll be back on sharing more about that in twenty twenty three, which will be here before you know oh, it, right? Love to. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'll talk with you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to my story and also a thank you to Dr. Frayden for her support and expertise. You can find her on Instagram at advice I give my friends and also the links to get in touch with her in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode two eighty. You can also use that link, simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 280 to share this episode with anyone who might benefit from listening. Another easy way to share is take a screenshot of yourself listening to it and post it up to your Instagram stories. Thanks so much for being here and I will talk with you next week. Have a good one.